Welcome to Social Media Business, the podcast that covers building, managing, and monetizing social media. Brought to you by online community strategist Laurel Patworth. For more information, go to laurelpatworth.com. Expert panelists chatting today. And then I'd like to go through some news of the day. They're hard to predict before the shows because it's usually the, the breaking news of the day. So uh, today I thought I'd mention the Wikipedia blackout and a top uh, issue. Also the Facebook status update of the sister of the head waiter that was on the cruise liner that sank. Yeah, and the reason it's I amazing. Wanted that is, yeah, it was a very interesting mm. story. And there's also that issue with um, the people who were live streaming a woman trying to pull men into lifeboats instead of putting the phones down and trying to help her pull the men into the lifeboats and it was men that were using their phones to capture it mm-hmm. and that sort of that journalist question of if you see shooting on the street do you put your camera down and help people or do you document it for posterity you know um, it's not a cut and dried issue I don't think but we, we can discuss that um, any other news of the day that you guys would like to 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 hit on like straight away, but current current affairs type stuff in social media? Mm. Well, I think I think the the uh, the supper um, issue, um, and although it pertains mainly to the US, I think it affects everyone. And I'd I'd like to invite Shell to give his views on that. Well, well it's kind of interesting because I have. Uh, in support of the strike, I have been not using social media since 11.58 last night. I, I broke the, the fast because you guys are in Australia and, you know, uh, my government isn't uh, watching. Um, it's turned out to be more successful than we thought. I've seen about 10 elected officials announce on Twitter that they were reversing their position. Uh, the co-authors of SOPA have now withdrawn their support. So for this time, A, it was killed. B, is that ad hoc, it took long enough, but we did organize fairly well over here. Um, and three is the censorship issue will be back to bite us again and again and again, partly because of some merits to the core case until the government decides to do what they're going to do with it, which is always frightening. Mm. One, of, one of the things, um, I just done a, I just done a, I just did a radio interview with one of our radio stations here and, and was just really trying to point out that it does affect everybody, this, this ruling, mm. because if the Americans can force Visa to shut down services to Flickr because there's photos up there they don't like or YouTube, it doesn't just impact... Americans, it impacts everybody in the world because we yes, use all of those services as well. Yeah. And one day yeah. we might want to do Facebook ads and we can't pay for them because Visa's got an injunction against Facebook that it doesn't just impact America, it impacts, impacts the whole world. You, you can retweet me and not realize I used something that, that was a pirate of something and you can be culpable to I- imprisonment. Um, some of the cases... Uh, I forgot what, somebody uh, retweeted something about somebody who was sentenced to prison for four years and they were guilty of a crime, they could have been sent to prison for five years for having retweeted it. So um, (laughs) the the thing that was amazing 
What's that, Taya? I said it's absurd. When you actually hear it said out loud like that, it is actually quite absurd. Um, let me give you let me give you a real world example that's actually happened in uh, in at the Beijing Olympics. Families were taking photos of themselves in front of the Olympic yeah. rings, which is actually against the trademark rules. Absolutely. So the Olympic <laughs> Committee sued Flickr and all the photo sharing sites to take down photos, family photos that people had taken of themselves in front of the of the the rings. Now. The merchandising of the Olympics is just an abomination, full stop, uh, and the revenues around that. But that whole idea that now every single site is at risk for posting those photos, you know, Facebook could be sued, or those sites can have their revenues um, dried up by Visa, mm. or because a family took a photo of themselves in front of the Olympic rings. What do you guys think of that? Well, it reminds me of the PayPal sort of issue, where you know PayPal used to have a reputation of of just you know killing um, you know uh, accounts dead because someone somewhere complained about something, um, but this just takes it to a whole new level. Mm. I I really would love to see the politicians pass something that makes everybody that photographed their kid at Disneyland hugging Mickey Mouse a criminal. I'll give you political change. It's that. It's that. Ret <laughs> it's that retarded, isn't it? It really. Oh, is. and it's it is that bad. Every kid that dresses up as Lady Gaga, you know, every every person that holds up their Kim Kardashian DVD set and says, "Look what I've just bought." Anything like that. Uh, well, that's two of my behaviours cut there and then. <laughs> <laughs> You disco bunny. <laughs> I, I just, so before I answer Lee, I want to know if we're on the record or not right now. <laughs> <laughs> I'll, I'll sue anyone who retweets that. <laughs> She's I'm taping. To, I'm going to stick to M-I-C-K-E-Y. <laughs> if we can, let's move on to the other topic of the day. And I'm a bit concerned because um, my vision is out of sync with my voice, but... Hey, hey, we'll figure that out. Yeah, but is your okay. lipstick really that ruby, or is that uh, just the the screen, or are you honoring uh, Stephen's bird? <laughs> <laughs> the other topic of the day, I think, is the ship that went down, the cruise liner that went down off of um, yeah. the coast. Oh. In, is it the Mediterranean? It was close to Florence, Italy. It was close to Firenze. Okay, yeah. I used to live in Italy, so I kind of know what, what it's like over there. But the ship, one of the women on Facebook, she's the sister of the head waiter, posted up on Facebook, the captain is bringing the cruise ship close to shore so that my brother can, or my brother-in-law can wave at us from the, from the ship. I'm so excited. And then after that, she kept documenting what happened with the cruise liner that did indeed come too close to shore mm. and eventually uh, sunk and sadly taking lives. I'm interested in, in that perspective and also the one of the story of the woman who, again, she posted this on Facebook, that she spent her time pulling people out of the water while other people used their mobile phones to live stream to YouTube and other live streaming sites and I suspect also doing Facebook and Twitter updates, um, what was going on. So in other words, live streaming potentially their death. 
Mm. And her dismay that they weren't helping her bring help people into the lifeboats. So yeah. What's yeah. your perspective on that, guys? It's the, you know, I mean, the whole context of being a, a, addicted to media and you know your five seconds of fame. It's it's kind of I mean, people lose perspective. Um, in times of crisis because maybe, I don't know, maybe people don't think they're going to die um, and or don't realise the inherent risk associated with their circumstances um, and so they just, it's it, because it's part of their vernacular and their behaviour, they just, they don't consider the ramification when people are dying around them. I mean, it's, it's very sad actually. I, I agree. I, I, I think we all agree that it's sad. What worries me, though, is that I know of my own behaviour. There would be an element of I'm going to get this up before anyone else does. Yeah. Whereas yeah, it's, it's... I've got to tell you, I've got a different perspective, but I'll come to mine in a moment. Um, Cheryl, what were you going to say? Actually, I've got two perspectives. One is I'd like some good old-fashioned journalistic drilling in to be sure that what was said by this woman is actually true mm. and one of the technical issues having been in that part of the country is I couldn't get any connection I don't know how they did it on a lifeboat surrounded by rocks on the Italian coast um, <laughs> so so there is some doubt of authenticity to the story where she positions herself as the one heroine who then rushes to Facebook mm. and so I know what you're saying, it needs to be checked and I guess yeah. the other question is, is she just crossed that her mobile phone fell overboard, which is, um, I'm being satirical here because one of the questions that I have is, I often, I'm on flights all the time, I probably do um, at least four flights a week and one of the things I think about, because hey, that's just me, is if this plane goes down, what is the first thing I'm going to do? And the first thing I'm going to do is get on my phone and tell family and friends that I love them. Mm. And if I can't do a one-to-one, -one, in other words, I have to prioritize who I love the most, I will record what's happening and hopefully a message to them and hopefully and hope that somehow or the other it gets onto Facebook or the phone survives if I can't stream it live so that my last thoughts are, that they know my last thoughts are of them. So mm. that's one of my questions is what was the message that they were doing? Were they doing, oh, this is cool, the boat's tilting and then mm -hmm. showing the phone or were they actually trying in what potentially could be their last moments to reach out to the people that they love? Mm. And I think the other question is about documenting or live streaming life is well, well, if just, you're to add, just to add to my verification doubts, all these live streams, I haven't seen one posted. So if that's what they were doing. That's um, an interesting one, where, yes. Where, where is the document? Where is it? And why isn't it on the internet? I've got to tell you, we're seeing photos, though. We are seeing photos. I have a lot of hot buttons connected to this as somebody who's been at sea a lot. Um, only an idiot would take a ship carrying 4,000 people through an area like that. And apparently this guy has been written up for doing it previously. So, um, but, but. Now I completely forgot the point that I burst in here. What I find interesting in this discussion is we as social media people 
are having the kind of discussion that I had for many years as a media person. What do you do? I, 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 when I wasn't a student protester, I was covering student protests for Time Magazine. When mm -hmm. I saw somebody beaten and gassed, was it my job to record it or help? Mm -hmm. um, and it was a very good question. Um, when um, uh, I'm forgetting his name, Jack North, who I think it's no, Jack something, who is our senior social media guy at the Pentagon, he comes from Oklahoma City, and he was a volunteer shuttling the media into the ter act of terrorism we had here there. And uh, when there were bodies strewn on the street, he turned to cameramen and said, we need some help getting them on ambulances. And they looked at him like he was the craziest guy in the world and said, we're, the, we're videoing this for CBS. And it's, it's a very We're not paid to call for ambulances. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we don't call for ambulances. We photograph people dying in the streets. You know? Yeah, yeah. I think, that, I think there's a, 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 an intrinsic moment that happens when you when like a split second decision where you realize whether or not you can help and then you choose to kind of you know help or whether you realize that there's nothing you can do other than to document it I, I think that's kind of that's something that I'd be deliberating there have been questions about this before with people who've documented riots and there was one guy who documented the shooting with his mobile phone um, and there was questions there, and he said, well, what can I do? Tackle the shooter? I just get shot. So I'm filming mm -hmm. it so, you know, for the future mm -hmm. so that it can be used, I guess. Taylor, what do you think? Well, I, I actually think that it's, it's that uh, I'm going to sort of jump back a bit from the actual story and, and, and talk about the psychology of this, which is very interesting, because what what you were talking, um, Shell, earlier about this being a journalist's problem and a journalist's dilemma, or, a, you know, a, but now everybody has to make these ethical decisions who may not even be equipped to, you know, make these decisions. And what a responsibility it is to be sitting in, you know, all you are is a customer on a cruise ship who has, that's gone down, and you are now global news because you, and and having your your, your ethics and your, and your decision making scrutinised because mm. you've had to make a decision about whether to record or to help. And I think that, I mean, I find personally, and I guess I'm, I'm probably a good commentator on the idea of scrutiny, a, a, a private citizen having a lot of ethical scrutiny and, and all those sorts of things and the psychological struggle that you go through with private citizens becoming <laughs> public. And I, I think it's quite extraordinary um, to observe that. So, I, I, I know what you're saying, but one of the questions that I've had for a long time is that we've always handed over our um, ethics to other authorities. The yeah, government, yeah. the police and the media tell us what our ethics are. And perhaps the meaning of community is when we not only unite around a purpose but also around an ethical and a value system. And so we're being forced into situations at the moment where we say if we want the global village, mm. then we have to give up privacy. Privacy is an anathema to global village and vice versa mm. or is it can we set boundaries and um, if we are part of the global village then we better get the whole of the village thinking about what the ethical and and constraints are in, in that village and, and recognizing that at the same time you're always going to have outliers anyway so even if you set you know this this is the boundary this is the ethical boundary and we won't stray out of this there will always be people who will be on the edge Mm. Yeah, I agree with that, totally. totally.
In fact, they work really hard to be the bad boys of the yeah, network. Yeah, in my yeah, online yeah. communities, they really work hard to get that reputation of being a badass. <laughs> Were you ever a bad boy, um, Cheryl? <laughs> I, I object to the word were. <laughs> Fair enough. Okay. Um, we've done this a little bit back to front. Um, I had suggested that we that we introduce each other first, and then we go to the news of the day, and we went straight into the news of the day. But that's okay. I, we'll sort this out next I'm time. Making, and for those of those, those people who are listening to the show or watching the show, uh, this is the first one that we're doing. We're inflicting it on you so that you can give us your feedback on what could be done better. And you can state the bleeding obvious. <laughs> or you can come up with some other ideas and some segments you like. Um, the, so the segments at the moment are the current, we've just done some of the current news. Then the guys are going to introduce themselves and they're going to introduce a question or a situation that they'd like the panel to discuss themselves. So a topic or a philosophy or an industry that might need some help in the area of community building. I'm also, not for this show, but debating in the future, having a section called Bag the Sponsor. Um, we invite a sponsor to come on to the show and uh, we <laughs> abuse them and tell them what they're doing wrong and show them all the tweets and the Foursquare <laughs> reviews. Um, it's all lots of fun, and, uh, and a, but this is a not-for-profit show, and I'd like that money to actually go to a charity. So um, it'll all be in good fun, and if you'd like to sponsor the show uh, and sit in the hot seat <laughs> and be bagged as the sponsor, then uh, this, this is definitely the crowd to give you the hard time about what you're doing and not doing community building. What do you guys I'll, think of that idea? I can just see the sponsors lining up now. Yeah. <laughs> well, some of the cheekier sponsors will. I think people who are very, very protective of their brands uh, won't. But humour is such an important part of, of community building. And um, the slings and arrows and the touring and throwing and debate, and it's all in good fun. So I'm hoping that, you know, and, and they may actually learn something from us saying, what were you thinking? <laughs> Who knows? Well, well, I would suggest that we post an ad up on Craigslist saying masochist wanted. <laughs> I'd like to nominate yeah, I can just see the ad now. If your brand's not being trashed enough in social media, talk to us. <laughs> but this kind of anti anti-ad thing works so well sometimes for companies. Oh my guys, god, that was priceless. <laughs> so, victim number one, who'd like to go first, introduce themselves and then give a, a make a proposition to... <laughs> Let's take this offline. <laughs> Lee, I'm going to pick on you because nobody stuck their hand up. Would you like to introduce yourself in a couple of sentences and then put and then perhaps talk a little bit about what you're interested in and then open it up for discussion? Okay, all right. Thank you, Laurel. Um, oh, hello. Someone's walking in the house. I can hear someone walking. Who's walk? Who's got someone walking in the house? <laughs> I have. I confess. Yes. <laughs> You're on it's the, the ghost of Stephen Park. Yes, come and say hello quickly, Nanette. Hello. Good day, Nanette. This is at Ms. Gourmet. She can't hear you. Hang on. Hey. Just the, she's hey. just got her new wellies. 
Yeah, hijacking. Can't see them. Hang Complete on. Complete toss-up. There you go. <laughs> okay. See ya. Honey, you're with us. So, Stephen, you don't just go with a bird, Stephen, you don't just our apologies, sort of. Go ahead if you'd like to introduce yourself and your um, position. Okay. All right. Thank you. My name's Lee Hopkins. I'm a social media strategist. I've been involved in social media since around about 2005 and uh, have spoken here and, and overseas on social media issues. Um, what I wanted to talk about today uh, is uh, I've been doing some work um, over the last few months with various local councils, local government, and I my heart goes out to the local community or to, to the communicators there in these local governments because they want to join in the conversation, um, uh, but their hand—they're sort of their 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 hands are tied behind their backs, as it were, because of the process that they have to go through to get any decisions made within council. It has to go up through uh, various layers of management, and then mm. it's got to go through to the councillors themselves. Now, these councillors only meet—there's 15 or so of them—they only meet once a month. Um, and, you know, try to get them to talk about these issues in uh, at the same time as talk about a whole lot of other issues is really difficult. So the poor communicators have to find ways of hand-holding and, and leading the councillors through an educative process so they can come out the other side uh, with some sort of idea, yes, social media is a good thing, these are the risks, these are the benefits, and this is why and what we are going to do to, you know, to, to further engage our communities. Um, but, but so my my thoughts um, are around those poor communicators who are wanting to do it but are, are stuck. And I'm wondering if the panel has any ideas of of how they've seen it work in the past, or they've actually worked with councils to to help bring about change and to bring about these new communication technologies. Who'd like to go first in helping? Local councils, I think you'd call them boroughs, or is that English? That's, that's English. That's, that's English, English. That's that's English. boroughs. Who'd like to go first? I'll go first, you know. Uh, as, an American Lee, as an American Lee, I think all you should do is emulate how our local governments work and how responsive they are to, to, to their constituents, and you'll be all set. Um, the truth of the matter, that was a joke was a for those joke. Yeah, I'm oh, yeah, I was going to say. Are you kidding me? Please. Please. <laughs> the only thing. That's very, that's very, very funny. Let me begin with, with a serious observation. I, I, I've had the good fortune in the last few years to travel to a lot of countries. And with the exceptions of two countries, Singapore and Estonia, I'll come back to them. What I shared in common with everybody I spoke with is we're unhappy with our elected officials on the local level, on the regional level, and on the national level. What I found interesting is this isn't true in Estonia or, or, or Singapore, and I thought about it for a while, and I realized those were the two smallest countries I'd visited. And the governments were physically close to the people. Right. Uh, in, in Estonia, I had a cup of coffee in a, co in a coffee house across from Parliament with, with, with the, the Prime Minister of the country. And people walked by and they waved and somebody asked him if the babysitter had worked out and he was the head of state. <laughs> <laughs> wow. And 
what we have is an opportunity everywhere. I can't talk about Australian <laughs> local government, but we have an opportunity for local elected officials to stay closer with the constituents. I don't know if that can successfully scale to the national level, but on a hometown level where the issue is, well, snow removal in certain areas or better schools or safe streets and stuff like that, there is an enormous opportunity to use what tools there are to hear what people have to say to government. And as far as teaching them what to say, all they really have to do is learn how to say whatever it was that got them elected or appointed to begin with, because that was pretty well received. What happens, though, is once you get elected, your focus goes from listening to the people to getting reelected. And now we can make a harmony between those two things, that if you want to get reelected, you now have the tools where you can show you listening to the people. Mm-hmm. You do that, all sorts of social good can happen. You don't mm-hmm. need, in our country, we call them PACs. I don't know what you call them, but they're where the fat bucks are put so that they can be sifted off to people without you knowing exactly who's, who's paying this guy off. You know, you don't need that if the government and the people can actually interact with each other. Social media makes that scalable for the first time. And I would love to see more of it on the the hometown level, everywhere in the world. Everywhere. Yeah. Except. Oh, look, I. Yeah, no. Sorry, sorry, go on, Laura. No, 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 you go ahead, Laura. Um, I work with uh, councils in New South Wales and Victoria, Albury and uh, Blacktown and and councils like that. And I think they focus very much on broadcasting their message out and using social media as a broadcast channel or or not that particular council but many of the councils do. And then those councils come to me and say, you know, what else can we do with these channels rather than simply telling the same story over and over again. And... I'm a bit concerned because I actually think representational democracy is in trouble. Why do I need a local council when I should be able to go to a community, a geolocated community, you know, everybody in my location belongs to this community. They decide what the issues are, uh, vote on them, and then allocate resources that way. So, for instance, we Fix My Streets, you don't just take a photo of what's wrong in your local council area, uh, maybe a park bench is broken, but people vote on which service, uh, sorry, they, they, work, they vote on which thing they want to have fixed first, and then they get a working party together to go fix that thing. So in a sense, in all social media, we disintermediate the mediator, and I think councils are mediators. And so we remove the council out of the equation and, and, and the community collaborates to fix itself. The biggest, biggest um, showing of that, I think, was the Twitter usage for the riot cleanup in London. The councils had no show at all on Twitter, but Twitter was being used by the participants to organise their own riot cleanup. And the response from the government was shut Twitter down during times of hardship. Mm. Um, the other, so I'm a big believer that government has to move from being a service to being a platform. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, if they yeah, want yeah. to stay effective, they have to offer the fix my streets type of platform, 
and that enables the community to come together, truly be a community, truly vote on their own issues. Mm -hmm. um, so we're in the post-representational democracy phase, mm. era. Uh, what do you guys think? Um, in, uh, look, I think um, there's some really interesting things there. In, in two, towards the end of 2010, I was involved in um, helping put together a, a strategy for the South Australian government where um, for the first time ever they actually socialised the strategic plan for the state and uh, we actually built an online portal to um, enable them to do that. And, um, and you know, during its uh, basically put it out to the people um, and asked them what they wanted for their state. And within a matter of months, there were 70,000 people com like communicating, participating on that site um, for the SA plan. And, um, and when, it, when the actual period of socialization had come to a close, it, um, that community remained really vibrant. And there was a lot of um, incredible discussions about um, both urban and regional community and what they really wanted as prioritized uh, for what the what state. was the name of the community again? Uh, it was a, it was um, with uh, basically the South Australia Strategic Plan. It was the SA Plan. Yeah, yeah. Because it, uh, Lee asked for some examples. I also think the uh, future of Melbourne Wiki, where people were asked to visualise what mm -hmm. Melbourne would look like uh, in the future and mm -hmm. to upload photos and put together some some plans so that, that the community collaboratively created their their town. I think that was um, that was an interesting one. So I don't know if you're familiar with those two. But Lee, your Lord Mayor of Adelaide is an excellent user of social media, don't you think? He's often tweeting about what's happening at the Adelaide markets and parking and all sorts of things. He is. Stephen is, uh, Stephen is an excellent communicator and, and uh, I was very fortunate to be one of the early advisors to him on, on you know, how to engage in the social media world. And in fact, um, he took me on a, yes, there was a bit of a win there. Uh, he took me on a, a little tour around the, um, the um, Adelaide uh, Council Chambers and showed me the, uh, the table that um, uh, Colonel Light actually mapped out Adelaide on before he actually then, you know, went on and, you know, said build this, build that. But the actual table I think just at this moment, I just would like to just interrupt and, and point out to the overseas people and non-Australians listening is that um, Adelaide is a square and then that square is cut into four other squares. So as far as laying out cities, um, all right, I'll be quiet right now. That was a bit weird. <laughs> <laughs> I was just what wondering. What is the square, right? Like, is, is that where? You need for a square? I, I was just wondering if one of you Australians could verify this. Is that <laughs> how you have to name Yeah, it's actually a grid. It's a city. It's a city designed on a grid. It's a city design, and Canberra was designed by the same guy, and it's a circle. <laughs> with other circles within it. So we call one roundabout world and the other one the square city. But Lee, I'm an Adelaidean, you know that, so I'm yep. allowed to abuse yep. my own hometown and um, Stephen Yarwood won't mind, oh, maybe you will. Um, sorry, but yeah, you go on and I know that you've lost your thread of thought now. Yeah, I, I've completely lost it, so... <laughs> yeah. But yes, Stephen Yarwood. Yes, that was it. Stephen Yarwood. Yes, he's an excellent. Um, he's one of the the, the very few um, uh, 
political agents that I've seen that uh, that is cognizant and actually uses social media really well to engage with his uh, his communities. Um, and sort of, I wish more were like him. Now, Cheryl, what do you call your Lord Mayors? Are they governors or something? Oh, Lord, we call most of our elected officials are worthy rhymes with tadpoles. <laughs> um, uh, uh, we, we we have in our cities we we have mayors, in, in, in our state houses we have governors, um, and in Congress we have rogues and scallywags. Yes. Um Lee, does any of that help answer your question? Yeah, that's great. That's give me a I, couple of um just a couple I, of ideas I, I, that Go on, well, Taya. I, I have an add on that, that, that I uh, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Taya. Okay. Um I, I just wanna more a lot of your question was actually about how the organization adapts rather than you know how, how they actually adapt to real-time communication and what, what we're actually seeing in the policy cycle is that rather than consultation engagement happening at you know sort of the end of the policy process they're actually having to you know engage very early on and involve people um, and that's actually something that's really great um, but the organization itself actually has to has no choice but to adapt because I'm actually I work with a few politicians as well and what we're actually seeing is that those that do well are doing really well and those that don't get it actually you know they're just they're afraid and they just have no idea how to use social media and they're actually paying the price for it I actually think you know I mean we've had you know Eric Ripper lose his leadership in WA um, yesterday and I don't I, how much that his incapacity to engage online I, I you know I do wonder how you know whether that has had an impact but um, I thought that was quite interesting anyway, um, that the, in terms of the policy cycle and the structure of the organisation, they have no choice but to now um, engage throughout the process rather than just as, a, after, as an afterthought. Go ahead, Shell. Very quickly, just two thoughts uh, because I've been sarcastic about it, but I think local government should focus on little issues that can be solved. Um, Information that little issues that can be solved using social media. Uh, in Newcastle, England, they got into social media by announcing school closings. They did it because they couldn't decide when the schools were going to close till five in the morning, but they had to announce the closing on the BBC the night before. So they suddenly started using um, Facebook and Twitter to tell people what schools were open or closed during bad weather. Ferry schedules. This you're, stuff. you're absolutely right. Uh, crisis communication often propels organizations that have been, in Taylor's right, terrified. Mm. Crisis communication forces them to the front. Because I've looked at the chart of all the retweeting during the Queensland floods. At the top 10 retweeters were local people who were trusted for giving the right information. The, the, the 10th to 20th percentile were a couple of major services, I think a couple of media services and the police. The government, particularly local government, did not show up anywhere as far as stepping up during crisis communication to ensure that the information reached the right people about the floods at the right time. Now, I'm sure people can contact me, um, and I hope they do, in response to this video and tell me examples of where that's not true and the council were out there doing things but if you rely 
on the old way of doing something, you will pay a price. There is a cost of inaction and a COI for this. So, Lee, if I were you, and what I often do is I talk to them about the COI, the cost of inaction of not being involved in this, hmm. and then try and take them through. Um, I have seven steps. You can pick any number. <laughs> seven steps towards full engagement. You know, the first one is using it as a broadcast channel and then move them all the way through to a peer-to-peer government as platform sort of solution. Hmm. All right. Um, thanks, Lee. Who'd like to go next? Uh, I just want to move this one along so that people don't have to listen to a war and peace video that goes on for hours. <laughs> and and um, I know I'm taking up um, more time than I wanted to. So who'd like to go next? Can I go next? Stand. All right. All right. I want to. Huxley on on Twitter. Do you want to introduce yourself? Yeah, um, my name's Stephen Johnson. I'm at Huxley, and um, I am quite passionate about uh, decentralised action and creating movements around things that are important, whether they be big global things or you know things that are happening in local community. Um, I founded a social enterprise catalyst called Altitude um, midway through 2010 and that's kind of um, working with as an incubator for social enterprises and it's also a bit of a decentralised agency. So um, but the topic that I wanted to talk about today was um, social technology improving the human condition um, and in my work I've seen um, it's a big topic, I realise, so trying to rein it in around some key areas of focus. I was thinking about shaping identity and meaning and how do we create value in ecosystems which are persistently disruptive, as well as, um, you know, um, in the context of, um, of changing paradigms, how um, social enables us to exchange ideas, to collaborate, um, to share our vulnerabilities um, and in the way that it's connected to um, what's deeply within us um, and that's to leave a legacy. So I want to kind of put it to the panel um, to see what you think about um, the potential for social technology to change or improve the human condition and to create lasting effect and impact. Well, certainly, I think that there's there's a potential for 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 every man to benefit. But in particular, I've I've um, had some small dealings with um, those who are disabled, and I go back to the the era of uh, Second Life, and they were, Second Life for them was tremendously enabling because suddenly mm. people who are wheelchair bound, for example, or or, or other conditions, were able to engage in a fantasy life, which for them was almost real. You know, mm. their mind was very quickly um, taking on what it was seeing on the screen and believing it as real. Um, and so I think these new social technologies where you've got the opportunity to get out from um, from being stuck in a, in a constraint um, and you can go and engage with other people, even though you might be physically you know, stuck where you are, I think those, those technologies are fantastic for the human condition. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Taya, what do you think? So, well, from that, I think, and using the e-health example is actually a really, really good one because, um, and that's just, not just Second Life, but, you know, in terms of health communities, uh, people who can, with chronic illness, you know, who might not be able to connect or go to a support group locally, 
are actually, you're, you know, you're, uh, the lupus community stands to mind where there's a massive global community of people who um, who deal with chronic pain and, and, and fatigue and all of those sorts of issues who actually, you know, communicate. And I think that that's quite an extraordinary thing for um, people, especially with rare diseases, um, who may be, you know, one of ten people in their state who, who you know, have issues or, you know, that, that was just a, that what I was interested in with what Lisa said. Mm -hmm. but, so, uh, um, yeah, I agree. And, and, and Cheryl, or, um, Cheryl, do you want to have anything to say on this one? I always have something to say on everyone. Uh, but... That's why we love you. I, 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 I love you too. Can you go offline now, Silchern? <laughs> go on, Cheryl. <laughs> no, I can't ask you that, no. But seriously, folks, no. But but seriously, but seriously, seriously. Um, since two thousand five, I've probably done about five hundred interviews. I'm sorry, Lee. There have been others. I'm sorry, Lyle. There have been others. But this is the best about, interview. About how people use social media all over the world, and the number of stories that I've heard including yours, Laurel, as I pause to say, shows how social media, your story of going to the Middle East and helping Muslim women set up a social network is an example that, that is recurrent in everything from people with terminal cancer talking uh, in a hash mark chat on Twitter. But I was, I've been hit by so many stories about how the human animal helps other human animals. Who, how people, a woman in Adelaide, um, um, Australia. I forgot that country for a minute, but um, she always got made fun of because she fancied hummingbirds, which isn't that popular a pastime in Australia. And, and, and then she started a blog and she posted pictures of hummingbirds, and she found dozens if not hundreds but dozens of people all over the world who liked hummingbirds and they shared mm. pictures mm. and they found each one of them found there are others like me there are others that suffer with my disease there are others who have the passion that I have to me what Stephen is talking about goes to the very heart of what makes social media such a game changer for just about everything and so you, you began by saying you're very focused on local issues, and I guess I'm the reverse. I, I look at local issues and say, what's the global truth to this? What's the universal wisdom to this? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I, see I see it all the time. Mm. Look, that, that's a great point. I, I think the context of, um, of decentralized action is about local... Um, being global, it's the inside-out approach. Yeah. So, so you know, it's. I mean, some of the some of the work that I've done in communities around health with the UN, for example, um, to raise awareness around you know malaria endemic countries, and you know, like the, for example, um, I went to um, the Solomon Islands in two thousand and eight with the UN. Um, and uh, that was post the um, the 2007 earthquake tsunami, and and I was asked to basically look at how social media could get the stories out of the people whose lives had been affected um, by that tragedy. And and um, 
you know, many, I find that many, um, many organizations, aid organizations, try and actually come in with a Band-Aid, um, but they don't actually, when they leave, um, the, the same people are there, um, often fumbling, not really knowing what to do, and I, I found in my own work that the most effective way forward is to look at how you can empower the local people um, to get their, their story out um, and um, and to create awareness that way, um, and and so it's kind of, you know, um, it, it is definitely inside out, um, and there's and there's lots of different approaches. And as you said, hummingbirds is a brilliant example. You know, you're talking about the digitization of the village, and people sharing stuff um, with total strangers that become their uh, most uh, cherished friends, um, some of whom they've never met before. Um, and so the ho then that opens the whole context of intimacy and how, um, from a human condition perspective, and what is intimacy? What is the change paradigm around intimacy in relationships now? There are two people I'm looking at in the strip across the bottom who I consider old friends. If I walked across, maybe it's the Bay Area uh, persuasions, but if, I, if I, I saw Laurel, I'd go up and I'd hug her automatically. Same for you, Lee. You're old friends. I've been reading your thoughts and your wisdom. Uh, I've read about you when you're pissed off. Uh, Laurel starts inviting me over for a beer when it's a day behind her. You know, it, it, this is, we keep meeting old friends for the first time. We keep discovering there are people all over the world who feel like we do. And to me, that's the whole hook. That, that's why I've become this obsessive, compulsive follower of where social media goes. And Welcome to Social Media Business, the podcast that covers building, managing, and monetizing social media. Brought to you by online community strategist Laurel Patworth. For more information, go to laurelpatworth.com.